I always have to. Life Jitsu episode four. Frank Forza here. Art of life. I'm here with my old friend Tom Monahan. Known this guy 15 years. He was formerly he ran the homicide division, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, which is a big deal. We got a lot of crazy crime stories here. We always say all roads lead to Vegas. If there's some crazy story out there, nationally, internationally, it usually has a Vegas angle. Nine one nine one one. They were here at what? Yeah. You know, yeah, they were all here. They prior came here to the attack. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the 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 Beltway sniper, highway sniper, yeah. caught in Las Vegas, and so many others. So. I worked for the Las Vegas Review Journal as a cops and courts reporter, and I had to sit here. And my my relationship with Tom Monahan was very important, and it's an interesting relationship between reporter and you know a, a a spokesperson because Tom has you know it's usually in his best interest he can only reveal certain information, and and because for instance at a crime scene there's information that only the killer could know, and so you have to really be careful what you say and of course my interest as a journalist to get as much as I can thinking hey it's in the public's best interest that's how we justify it so anyway Tom and I are here I'm very happy to have him this guy has seen it all and I'm really interested as I was telling Tom before we started I'm really interested in in how he and the homicide detectives and the police officers he's worked with they go to these horrific scenes they see so much death they see so much uh, you know, just horrible things, things that happen to kids. You have that in your mind. And yet you still have to go home. You have to be a father. People have to be a husband. You have to try to become a better person. And sometimes it's like eating from that apple, the, the Bible, right? Adam and Eve, where you eat from that apple and you just know too much sometimes. And so we're going to talk about that sort of mental management for, for people like Tom Monahan, who is a Jedi. Don't let his quiet voice for you. This guy is a very smart, high-functioning person. We're going to talk about work-life balance, and I just, Tom just, we're here out front of Coffee Bean. Tom told me that um, he, he, hold, he limits himself to two cups of coffee a day. We're going to talk about his relationship with coffee and food and fitness, so we'll, we'll touch on those things. Uh, basically, life through the eyes of a seen-it-all homicide pro. Um, Tom Monahan, welcome to Life Jitsu. Thanks so much for Thanks, Curry. It's, uh, <laughs> I blew it. He's calling my old name. <laughs> it's Forza, but it's okay. Yeah, we'll talk, sorry we're about just that. Talking, we're talking about the name change. We'll get into that later. But Thanks, Frank. It's good to see you again. <laughs> it, uh, it has been far too long, so it's great to catch up. Uh, and we had kind of a, an unusual relationship between homicide detective and police beat reporter. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, the, the relationship can be uh, antagonistic at times because our goals were competing. You were looking to uh, collect as much information and I was trying to provide you with just enough information to satisfy your needs while keeping most of it to ourselves. Usually less information, a lot less information. Yeah, than we yeah which, which led to probing <laughs> questions, which you were uh, outstanding at. But uh, I think underlying all of that was the fact that we had a mutual respect. I knew that you could not go back to the paper without achieving most of what you set out for. Um, and you understood that certain information had to be retained and not disclosed because yeah. otherwise you know, there was a risk of compromising an investigation. So we had that kind of mutual respect. I wanted to provide you with enough to keep your bosses happy. And you were 
cognizant and respectful enough to understand that I wasn't going to give you everything they wanted uh, because you saw the bigger picture and ultimately justice was what we were all looking for. So Yeah, it's interesting. As a reporter, you always know more than you can print. Right, and so even you can, you know, you learn to read between the lines. What's interesting, guys? We're going to step aside for a second. When I, I would love to see one day how a Tom Monahan, when Tom Monahan reads the newspaper, how someone like you, you read a newspaper very different, or you watch the news very different than other people. I do too, because we are in a position to much more read between the lines. There's an anonymous source. Who was the anonymous source? People like us instinctively are easier, like, oh, well, I can, who benefits from that? And, and even when, you know, when the, 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 the shooter here at Mandalay Bay, which happened last year, horrific mass shooting, one of the worst in North American history. And so someone like you, who you don't work for the police department, LVMPD anymore, but I'm sure the wheels were turning. You're reading it. You're looking at a profile. I mean, you're in a position to make some calls too. But even if you didn't make any calls, you are in a position, at least with all of that encyclopedia of knowledge, to think, you know, the wheels be turning like, okay, here's the information. Uh, this doesn't add up. This doesn't this. And you you probably, did you sort of naturally go to a profile of this guy, even just even just watching it on TV? Did you, were you, could you, were you... I guess, I don't know, what, what goes through your mind when you see something like that on the news and what do you start asking yourself and where do you go when you, when you, when you first encounter that? So you're exactly right. Uh, the experiences that I had in the five years I was in homicide, which was 600 murders and another 100 officer-involved shootings. So that's quite a bit of context. When you've been to 600 death scenes and you've been either participating or been the interviewer in several hundred interviews of killers, it provides the context in which you view the world to include uh, subsequent murders such as uh, Mr. Paddock. Um, and so when, when people are trying to understand what happened, everybody keeps asking for motive. Um, I don't worry about things like that. First off, when, when seeking a motive, people are trying to place an irrational, unreasonable act into something that they understand and is rational and reasonable. I believe that that's because when, when people look at killers, they want to find the one thing that, that is different, the one character flaw that the killer has that separates them from the rest of us. Because without that character flaw, without that thing that separates the killer from the rest of us, the implication is that they are just like the rest of us. <laughs> And the implication of that is that means every one of us is capable of this sort of thing. Now, absent from any of this discussion, and, and this is not to, to bring it into the religious aspect, but if we accept the fact that there is evil in this world without the religious dimension to mm-hmm. it, if we accept the fact that there's goodness and there's evil in this world, then it's a lot easier to accept the, uh, the incidents such as the school shootings and we accept the... the the existence of October 1st shooting type of incidents. Mm-hmm. So when you, where were you, I mean, you probably know, where were you when you got wind of this of this shooter, and, and what do you, did you, you know, did you care to know, like, okay, what, you know, what's going on? I know that, you you know, the why is not, the motive is not, I, I mean, I remember you used to tell me that as a, um, when I was a journalist, because right? of course, I am a motive guy, again, I'm sort of like the regular public, and that's a fan, by the way, what Tom Monahan just said—that is a fantastic explanation—and I hope that you, the people out there, appreciate that. It is a fantastic explanation 
of why people, you know, what's interesting is, so I saw a story, Harvard University had a professor, I saw the story last week, and he did the statistical analysis, like, what's the probability, because we're all, people are all up in arms, and parents are up in arms, and protests, and, and we're all like, how do we stem these mass shootings? Or there have been 220-some or, or so in the last five years, according to the stats I saw. So this Harvard University professor, and I remember this as when I was a journalist with the Review Journal, it's like, when you look at the stats, like, wait, what's the probability that you will be murdered? I mean, and you and I know, it's like, well, if you don't, unless you make the mistake of marrying a really abusive husband, really a violent abusive husband, unless you're deep in the drug game or something, or a drug addict, Unless you have really bad, I mean, your odds are like astronomical. Whether the odds of you being killed are, are, are so slim and infinitesimal, and even with these mass shootings, as much as they're 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 upsetting, they're disturbing, they're disgusting, they infuriate us. But the good news is, according to Harvard Press, like it's like a one in six million in in the course of a year, it's like a one in six million chance you're going to be killed or injured in a in a mass shooting or or something. So. There's a disconnect between the societal fears, the fears people have, and the reality, which is this is highly, 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 almost infinitesimally improbable that this will happen to you. Even if, even if these doubled or tripled or quadrupled, still it's highly, 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 highly improbable. And yet people spend so much energy afraid um, and I do agree we need to do more things. I mean, we do need to be doing more things like with schools. I agree with that. But still, the level of fear that people have does exceed the actual threat. And you, you can talk about uh, about that. There is absolutely no question you are exactly right about that. Uh, with regard to school shooters, for example, yeah. by a magnitude of 10,000, your child is more likely to get hurt with you driving him or her to school than because of a school shooter at their school. Yeah. By a magnitude of 10,000 or more. Uh, the the fear that we have has little relationship to the probability of, of us being injured or killed by that. Mm -hmm. A great example of that is terrorism. Um, another example of that is these mass murders. You are far more likely to be injured or killed in a car wreck, again, by a magnitude of 10,000, mm -hmm. than you are by a mass shooter, yet... Um, that seems to be the national discussion. Now, why is that? So, I just finished uh, writing a chapter for a textbook about this. All right. So, humans make their decisions based on heuristics, um, kind of a fancy word for uh, emotional shortcuts mm -hmm. for making decisions. And two heuristics that are dominant in, in decisions based on fear are the affect and the availability heuristic. The availability heuristic is how likely, how available is that to us? And then the affect or dread heuristic is how horrible is that? So the availability heuristic is influenced highly by mass media. We would believe that school shootings and mass murders and terrorist events are highly available to us or highly likely to happen to us because that's what we, we flip on the TV or we open up the newspaper, that's what's there. Rarely do we see about a fatal car wreck in the newspaper. Rarely do we see about the fatal car wreck in the newspaper because they happen so frequently. Mm -hmm. So there's an in inverse relationship between the availability and the likelihood it's going to be found in the mass media. The affect is the, uh, the dreadfulness of it. So uh, we can control 
whether or not we get in a wreck in a car by defensive driving, by buying cars with you know side airbags, and and by making sure that we seatbelt ourselves in, and we can protect our children by buying the right car seats and securing them properly. We have absolutely no influence over whether or not we're going to be subject to a terrorist event. It's that that um, randomness mm-hmm. that creates a greater degree of dread. So. It, it could be legitimately argued, and I do make this argument, that there is a strong direct relationship between mass media and fear of things that are statistically less probable than others. If we really wanted to uh, make our lives safer, uh, you know, we wouldn't drive. But that is incompatible with our lifestyles. So it's an acceptable risk, and that's why we continue to continue the way we are. But uh, you know, that's uh, Tom. What is uh, great points? What is the solution? Like, in other words, how do you remedy that? Because it, the, the the risk doesn't fit with the reality. Doesn't fit with the risk. We have this exaggerated sense. Uh, we're going to be killed, or this random terrible thing could happen to me or someone I love. We have this super exaggerated sense of it. People live in fear of it more than they should. What's the solution, right? The media obviously benefits, and that's part of the, the media. That's part of how you generate. They generate their revenue, and so they're not going to stop. I mean, I work in the media. They're not going to stop pounding these drums and 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 and, and sensationalizing and capitalizing. So, what is the? I guess what solution? Don't watch. If, you're, if you want to have a healthier mindset, watch less news, read read less of the of the if it bleeds it leads stuff. What's the what what's the solution? So, it is my position that there is no silver bullet solution, that there is no single thing that is going to fix this problem. It won't be any abridgment of the Second Amendment. It won't be any abridgment of the First Amendment. It won't be any constitutional changes. There are there is no single solution for this. It requires a variety of subtle changes, um, some of which are going to be palatable, some of which some people will find unpatable, uncompatible. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but nevertheless, those that argue for a single, and I, and I, and I hear it a lot, and it, and it defies logic, but the single common sense solution doesn't exist. Yep. It's interesting because I was reading yesterday in London, of course, they have right now, which is exceptional, their homicide rate trumps New York City's homicide rate. That's the first time in history that's ever happened. And, of course, guns are, for, to my knowledge, illegal in Britain for regular citizens. Um, and so a lot of these homicides, from what I'm reading, are knives. And so now the mayor is saying, listen, we're going to crack down on knives, and we have the right, if we suspect that you have a knife, we the police have the right. I mean, again, they don't have the same search and seizure and whatever. What's it, the Fourth Amendment, I think? Yeah, Fourth, right, Fourth yeah. Amendment. Uh, they don't have those, to my reading, the same provisions, so they have the right to, hey, we suspect you might have a knife. We want to try to check you. But, again, to the people, we don't want to get, we're, we're, Life Jitsu is not here. We're not here to, I'm not here to talk about pro-gun, anti-gun. But the interesting thing is, if, if you're following the London situation, there's people that are proficient with knives. People are going to find ways. Um, 
doesn't mean that there shouldn't be some kind of gun legislation, background checks. And the, you know, some of the background checks are just it's 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 a joke. Like what some of the back quality of some of the background checks, but knives. I mean, we don't we don't see a lot of that. I don't know. I guess it's interesting. Go ahead, speak to that point. I guess. So uh, first off. I agree with you 1,000%. I don't want to uh, give your listeners yeah. uh, the thought that I am right. choosing a side, right, 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 Second right, Amendment, right. non-Second right. I'm, I'm right. absolutely neutral on that. But your point, my point was exactly that. With every single politically motivated silver bullet solution to right. a problem yep. rises a whole spectrum of unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. So with every action, there's at least one equal and opposite reaction. And uh, very, very often, our politicians are looking for the quick win rather than a, a proper, comprehensive solution. Yeah, a systemic kind of, you know, that, that's really the way that I've looked at it just from my cops and courts experience. It's been, the, as a society, if we are producing, because we are producing more mass killers obviously it's easier now than ever i mean it's just you know in the media has helped because once it's now a seed it's now a seed that's planted in some some suicidal or deranged person's mind whereas if you didn't have all these images it wouldn't well, be a, a seed. one of the one of the things that drove me crazy after october 1st was the constant mantra of the media the the largest mass murder to date well yes that is factually accurate however all they did was simply set the bar for the next person that wanted to become infamous for being the biggest mass killer. So by advertising these you know, body counts, and, and you may recall that was one of the significant questions that your editors wanted to hear was, what's the body count? Um, sadly, the byproduct of that is that you're just setting the bar for the next person to try and get over that bar. It's interesting when it happened, because I, I thought when I was, you know, I sort of, I'm like this armchair psychological profiler, and you guys probably do a way better job than I do. But I thought the only thing I know about him for sure is that uh, the guy didn't love himself. Like anybody that will go and just indiscriminately kill people, especially him, indiscriminate killer, like he's a self-loathing kind of person. This is a person that doesn't give a damn. You know, it's the most dangerous person, someone who doesn't give a damn about themselves. Why the hell, why would they give a damn about? whomever else um but so going into to the homicide stuff what you what what you and your detectives you mentioned you know the the hundred and some officer involved shootings the 600 plus homicides here in vegas what's it like i mean you can get a pager at one in the morning two in the morning three in the morning you never you never know what your hours are going to be you're at the mercy of that pager this is back when there were pagers everybody before cell phones the guy had a pager and that pager beeps. You're going out to those scenes. How do you manage, again, to be a father, to be a husband, to be a good citizen, and at the same time have all of that, <clears throat> have all that stuff in your head? Yeah, it, uh, it was a challenge. Uh, I think nearly everyone that's done what we do for a living has learned effectively to compartmentalize things. We have the work compartment, we have the family compartment, you might have you know, the marital compartment, but you're able to compartmentalize these things and you try and keep one compartment from bleeding over, figuratively speaking, uh, into the other. So, uh, for example, I remember um, working a, uh, a murder case and it was, I probably got the phone call at two in the morning 
and uh, at about six in the morning, I had to leave the crime scene. So it's a, it's a bloody murder scene. I had to leave the crime scene to go home uh, to uh, wake my kids up, feed them breakfast, make their lunches, drive them to school, and then go back to the crime scene. Uh, so you had to almost hit pause on the remote control of your professional life long enough to address your family life. And of course, these kids, they, they looked at me as dad, not as Lieutenant Monaghan. Uh, and it was vitally important that they not see the other side of me. And so that's just one instance. It happened, it happened very often. Yeah, it's interesting. You wonder, how does that, seeing all of that all the things you see there, how does that shape your view of human nature? Do you just compartmentalize it? Hey, there is evil. There's an evil in the world. It exists to do evil things. How do you, how does it, does it, has it jaded you? How do you, do, do you see, is the glass half full? What, what is your view of human nature? Has that helped shape in any way your view of human nature? Or do you just separate it and say, no, that, I don't let that shape my view of human nature? No, it, it certainly uh, it certainly affects you. It would be impossible for it not to affect anybody. And I'm not, you know, there's 800,000 cops out there that have the same experience as I do to greater or lesser degrees. Mm-hmm. So I'm not unique in any regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can't help but to jade you. But, you know, you talk to any paramedic, they'll tell you the same thing. What it did do, however, is it caused me to have a, a better understanding of the, the realistic probability. So, mm-hmm. as you mentioned earlier, and, and this is one of the quotes uh, that I used to repeat, mm-hmm. if you're not in a violent relationship, if you're not a gang member, if you're not a drug user or seller, the likelihood of you being killed by virtue of homicide is infinitesimal, probably, by probability. So, you know, I wasn't worried about you know, my, my family being murdered necessarily. Uh, did I worry about them when they were driving? You know, did I worry about the kids they were hanging out with and, and them being caught in some type of, uh, you know, accidental crossfire? Absolutely. Uh, but I think every parent worries about that. Uh, my career certainly placed into context the risks that, that we all face in American society. It, uh, but I think that that it allowed me to better estimate the probability of something bad happening. So I probably worry less than your average person. Um, but I think that's just because, you know, when when you see how relatively infrequent these things happen, um, it, it helps. What what is there a case or cases, homicide case, that most affected you and why? Um yeah, there's, there's several. Um, one, and I, I don't remember if you were a reporter at the time, a fellow by the name of T.J. Weber um, was brought in uh, to a family. Uh, it was the boyfriend of the mom. Um, ended up having a sexual relationship with a 14-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, when I say relationship, I'm not for a second implying it was consensual. Right. I'm just saying that, right. that he abused her. Um, when mom was going to leave uh, or throw him out of the house, he went. He killed the uh, the girlfriend, killed their or her fourteen year old son, um, raped the daughter, and then uh, you know fled. We were ultimately we we had thought we had him pinned down. In any event, um, for about two weeks, this guy literally terrorized 
the Las Vegas Valley. It's on the loose. It was on the loose for about two weeks. Literally terrorized the family. Now, we recognized pretty early on that the only way we were going to catch this guy is to have the 1.5 million people at the time looking for him. Couldn't be just a police effort. So as a consequence, uh, we had a mass uh, media blitz. I mean, mm -hmm. I was on the news and the newspapers twice a day for two weeks. Mm -hmm. um, as a consequence, I became you know, very well known in the community, uh, which is odd for a cop to be mm -hmm. you know, recognized in supermarkets and restaurants and things like that. So it, it changed my life, but not necessarily in a, in a good way. Um, Ultimately, T.J. will be caught. He's sitting on death row as we speak. Uh, didn't kill him, huh? Got him and, and didn't. They didn't. I mean, you know. Didn't. Yeah, the, he would be captured alive. Um, oh. He ended up escaping. Good, that's, that's pretty. That's pretty good work. He oh, uh, he escaped by crawling into the flood control channels by Cashman Field. But and, now you guys had suspected that that might be a place. But you'd suspected that that, that, that that he might hide out there, maybe, right? Or no? Is that a well, place? Well, the last place he was seen was actually he had come back to the crime scene. Are the tunnels are they basically tunnels that he was hiding in? Basically, yeah. But flood, so so the rest of the story the underground tunnel. The rest of the story is that uh, while he was on the loose, about uh, five days later. Uh, they're having the funeral for the mom and the deceased son. So the surviving daughter and the surviving son go back to the house to get some clothes for the funeral. And T.J. Weber was hiding inside the house, waiting for them to return. And, uh, and so he started to attack the survivors. The uh, family that had taken the kids back there to get their clothes, the man drove his car right through the front of the house. Uh, in an effort. It's like a made-for-TV And, and what happened when he drove that? He, he saved their lives? He saved their that? lives. T.J. Weber was able to escape the house. We set up a perimeter really quickly. So he escaped again and it was on the lamp. We served well over 150 search warrants in houses in the area looking for this guy. But he was able to escape because there was a uh, tunnel entrance in the flood control channels under Las Vegas out by Cashman Field. And uh, he wandered through the tunnels, ultimately popping out over by... Uh, Palace Station, which, as yeah. you know, is like two and a half miles away. Yeah, so two weeks, and for those of you who might not know, I mean, for someone to be the most wanted person in a major metropolitan area and to be on the loose for two weeks, that's a long time. And even, you know, again, I'm, I'm assuming in some ways maybe a black eye every day that goes, you know, the police department, it kind of makes you like, you know, what do you got, you get a lot of, what are you guys doing, what's going on, how come you don't have him? And There was there some of that. Um, actually, it, the, the community was uh, pretty understanding. Nobody really, mm -hmm. um, you know, my bosses at the time were, were less understanding than the community. Right, right, right. But nevertheless, you know, we're, we're professionals and we wanted badly to, to capture this killer as well. So, that was, uh, that was one. Another one that was uh, highly affecting, we had a lady who was clearly very mentally ill um, out near Nellis Air Force Base. And at about 2 in the morning, she woke up, uh, woke her two children up, ages 3 and 6, and together the three of them walked to a Walmart where she picked up a couple items uh, to include a baseball bat. Uh, they walked back to their apartment. She put them back to bed. Once the kids were fast asleep, she uh, proceeded to batter them over the head with a baseball bat, killing them both. Uh, she would then step out into traffic on uh, the roadway and, and was hit with a, by a truck, an 18-wheeler. She survived. Clearly, both kids were, were dead. So, you know, it, 
you know, I was the parent of uh, three and a six-year-old at the time, and to see this, you know, this type of uh, crime scene was was obviously disturbing. But the thing that was the most affecting, effective to me was the press conference. So there were, as you might imagine, a number of TV reporters there. And you know, I have never done your job, but certainly I can appreciate uh, your job. And so a TV reporter, a young woman, asked me what the motive was. And by that time, I had had enough. And so I looked at her and suggested that, you know, you're asking me to explain what was rational and reasonable, which is you know, implicit in having a motive. What is reasonable and rational about what I just explained? And, you know, what kind of question was that? Now, sadly, she was just asking a question that her producers insist she asked. And she probably had asked that at 100 murder scenes beforehand, and it just probably came out out of reflex. But nevertheless, you know... It and if was, it hadn't have been this case that hit close to home to you with the kids and you'd seen that horrific scene, you, you would have handled it, even though you think it's a, hey, what are you guys worrying about that? But, but this particular case... I answered that question 599 times before differently. Uh, but nevertheless, I, uh, I was... Some would say I was just being a human. Um, others would, would say I was being an asshole. And, and they would probably be right. But uh, I, I embarrassed her on air and... Uh, unfortunate. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, by the way, uh, Life Jitsu, Art of Life, Frank Forza. I'm here with Tom Monahan, who is um, who used to be the head of the homicide division here in Las Vegas. Very active, busy homicide scene. He's seen, he's been over 600 homicide scenes, 100 plus officer involved shootings, and uh, just sort of seen it all. And we're talking about you know, life through the eyes of a police vet and trying to manage your life, trying to be the best person you can be and, and how these cases can affect you. So, so Tom, again, what's interesting is in your line of work, when you were working, you're now retired from the LVMPD, but, you know, any time that, that pager could go off and you'd be summoned to a scene and a big case, and I was like this for me as a reporter, a big case can be, a, I mean, pardon my, a living <coughs> hell for a police pro, I mean, it can be a big case. Can be, you know, they take on a life of their own, where it's like, will this thing just go away, right? Not the, you know, the, the, there are those kind of. So it's it's it like for us even as reporters, like people are like, oh, this is a big case, and people are reading and people are engaged, and editors are happy. But my life is now a living heck because every little thing that happens, of course, I got to call you and bug you. There's no new developments like what, but but everybody's calling you, harassing you, so you get way more calls on every little. Every time you get a big case. So, so there's two important points that you raise, and they're excellent points. Thanks, thanks for bringing them up. The first is, um, to the detectives and to me, there, is no, there was all, no big case. All, yeah. We treated everyone identically. We didn't care if they were a billionaire or a pauper. We, unlike television detectives, you know, don't get to work just one case. You know, we have a caseload. And so there, there are no big cases. There are no little cases. They are murder cases. Uh, the best example I can think of is the uh, murder case of Tupac Shakur. People are always wondering, well, you know, why haven't you solved it yet? Well, you know, I'm not suggesting that that murder was of greater or lesser degree right. than the others that we had in our caseload. I am suggesting that it had the same gravity. Now, 
to the media, it was a big deal. To many, many people, it's a big deal. And to the family, it's a big deal. And we understand that. Right. But we feel that same way about every other murder victim and their families. And so we don't make a case high profile. We don't make a case more important than the others. That's done by, by others. The, the second thing is, is that police administrators don't get that. And they don't understand that it isn't known from the very beginning what's going to emerge to be a, a high-profile case, and I have an example for that. Um, but that is an external force that we can't control. So in our mind, we just ignore it. Yes, I get a lot more phone calls about uh, those uh, prominent individuals that are killed. But uh, you know, to us, they're all the same. Perhaps uh, the best example I can give you, a, uh, a car was found uh, on fire out in Sandy Valley, which is, as you know, is kind of very infrequently travel road between uh, California and Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And so uh, volunteer firefighters get out there, they put out the fire, and uh, when they pop the trunk to make sure it's extinguished, they find a body inside. So, you know, we roll out there, and, uh, you know, there's a, a woman that's... Uh, Apparently bound uh, in the trunk, so tied up, tied up. Yep. So uh, using the police, we gotta we gotta go away from the. Yeah, sorry about that. that using police the lingo. Yeah, so she's bound. She's uh, she's tied up in the back in the trunk. So uh, and I remember that case. That was a horrible, yeah, horrible case. So uh, our detectives, uh, they go to the home of the registered owner. And they knock on the door, and their expectation is that they're going to be giving a death notification. Uh, and much to their surprise, when the front door opens, it is, in fact, the female registered owner of the Jaguar. So that was kind of curious. And so when they, they, uh, they obviously didn't have to give a death notification, but now it, uh, it added to the mystery. Ultimately, they would find out who the, uh, the victim was. But what made this case relatively high profile is the fact that the the convicted killers, uh, Craig Titus and Kelly Ryan, uh, were professional and very well-known bodybuilders and fitness professionals. Uh, and that case, because of the high-profile nature of the two accused, would take on a life of its own. But at the time, at 6 in the morning in the middle of the desert, it was just, you know, murder 600 out of... Well, it's interesting because... I covered that case too, and that case, by the way, that case stretched even to your home, your Boston stomping grounds. Tom is a native Bostonian for all you out there, and he's a big Boston sports fan. He's had a lot to cheer about in recent years. Uh, but, you know, with the bodybuilding thing, so when you look at domains, right, you think of, you can buy these domains online, and bodybuilding.com is a big one. And I'm like, yeah, man, bodybuilding.com, very prestigious. So, you know, it, it, that was an eye-opener to me. I forgot how many dang bodybuilders there are in America and how obsessed. And we're going to talk about this a little later because this is something I wanted to talk about, which is we have, we're having a discussion now as a society about the kind of people we want to breed and, you know, how much, how, you know, is there a war on alphas? What's the ideal, particularly where men are concerned? What's the ideal man? How do you rate? You know, are we wimpifying males? Should we be warring them up? What's the per, what's the right balance to be struck? There's almost, in my mind, this is me, not Tom, but in my mind, there is almost a 
a battle going on right now in this country, like as to how should we raise boys? What is a man? Like in, in the old days, to my sense, it was almost like it was like the John Wayne ideal or a bodybuilder like ideal. When you look at like men, men being men, it was sort of that, that's my, my notion. I look at it like a John Wayne or a bodybuilding thing. It's like, well, wait, what's the new thing that men should be? Should they be, you know, very effeminate, like, you know, sort of, uh, you know, well, I shouldn't say effeminate, but I mean more, more should it be, what's the balance to be struck between, uh, you know, my ideal was more of a warrior poet ideal where someone would have both, you're pulling a lot from both, and, but anyway, I, I'm, I'm digressing, but this this is really a discussion I, I want to have more of with my listeners. I want to entertain this with Tom in a little bit just by you mentioning bodybuilding. It, it goes like, to, wow, it's like, because that really was like the modern, the Joe Weider and, and you know, and, and all that whole culture. It's like, it's influenced us so much. Bigger is better. Men bulking up and that, you know, part of like, you had, that's why you see, you see some of these bodybuilder guys and they're like, 30 pounds heavier, 40 pounds heavier than they should be. Like, bro, you're going to have, even if you're not on steroids, if you are carrying around 30 to 40 extra pounds of, even if it's muscle, you are straining organs. You got God knows what going through your veins, your capillaries, whatever. You are going to have long-term health issues. And that is sort of this bigger, better muscle bodybuilder, whatever. And that, that case was a revelation to me because I had forgotten how many of those bodybuilder obsessed people there are and when that case happened and blew up that one again I didn't see that one coming I did not see like oh this case is going to be a normal case to me and then next thing you know MSNBC is calling Fox News is calling Core TV whatever whatever but so let me ask you this what movie what cop movie is the closest thing you've ever seen to the real world because Hollywood likes to fictionalize things exaggerate things they take a lot of liberty and license. A lot of movies, like, no, that's not it. What's the movie you've seen or movies that hit close to home? You're like, no, that's a cop, that's a real-life cop experience or a homicide detective experience. I, I can't point to a movie, Yeah. but there's a television... And I get this question asked a lot. Yeah. And nearly every cop I know of a certain age will, will answer exactly the same as me. The most realistic cop show ever made, Barney Miller. The old TV show from the 70s in the Station House in New York with the, the characters because, and you met many of them, Frank, uh, what a cast of characters we had in the Homicide Division. You had the, the very articulate, you know, guy who swallowed a dictionary and regurgitated it in every police report. You had the, uh, you know, the happy-go-lucky. You had the guy that was uh, not quite so bright, but mm-hmm. everybody loved him. You had... You know the older guys like us that uh, you know had to had to you know take uh, cholesterol medicines and, mm-hmm. and uh, it was Barney Miller. Uh, the the collection of characters is the most realistic uh, cop show ever. So go get your hands on that, millennials. That's 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 a throwback right there. That that never goes out. Barney Miller, B A R N E Y. Go check that out. Um, it's interesting because you said five years heading the homicide division, but in dog years, that's probably like forty years. Like that's 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 maybe years off your life. Like it's but it's a it's a paradox because on the one hand, that's a very prestigious, highly coveted job. I mean, to be for you to be the tapped as the head of the homicide division or whatever you know whatever the official title is, that's a big deal. Or even the homicide detectives to be a homicide detective, that's I, I'm assuming that's very prestigious in a police department, very coveted. 
not enough of those positions to go around, only a few. And so you have that. On the other hand, it's prestigious, it's entertaining, it's, you know, but on the other hand, it's stressful. Maybe it's like dog years in some way. It's like, well, five years and homicide is like 40 anywhere else. I talk about, speak about that, I guess. If, maybe I'm wrong, but that's. No, you're exactly mind. right. Um, because the way homicide works is, you know, uh, it's, if you've seen the show Homicide Life in the Streets, where mm-hmm. in David Simon, Baltimore. yeah, Baltimore. So it's, My hometown. It's like a wheel. So you don't. You're not catching every murder that happens in a certain period of town. And police mm-hmm. administrators didn't understand this. They, they didn't understand why everybody was on call all the time. Because you only had X number of hours to work a case. Um, and you had to run as long as you could until kind you... Kind of like flipping tables for exactly. a waiter. You have to kind of flip tables. So, exactly right. So, uh, we had uh, 12 teams, 24 detectives, that were... Uh, further organized into four squads. At the at the top of that is the lieutenant. That was me. So uh, while the detectives would rotate, so they would catch every thirteenth murder. Mm-hmm. Um, the sergeants would catch every fourth murder, and then I was there for every one. So mm-hmm. many many times I would work twenty four hours straight. A uh, couple times a year I'd work as many as two or three days without any sleep. Uh, which isn't good for your health, as, as everybody knows. You could have did like a Tim Ferriss kind of show there. We could have, been, that's a great guinea pig. Though. That's a very, that's a, yeah, a great guinea pig for some stuff too. Like how, you know, sort of mental. They should have hooked you up mentally and like, well, like well, to a to a uh, science machine and seen what what goes on at, at hour forty eight of no sleep. It's uh, you know, it's it's not a healthy way to live, and frankly. Uh, no one should do that because your cognitive skills deteriorate well after that. There's a reason that the medical profession has changed uh, what interns and residents do now. So it's I, I don't advise it, and it's it's, but it certainly takes years. Isn't off. that ironic that the people that are ascribed to oversee our health, doctors, the people that are supposed to keep us healthy, and they were pounding them with like 100 hour work weeks and residencies isn't that ironic like well, it's supposed to be the epitome of health my doctor my doctor should be the healthiest person i know and i'm telling you what in general that's not the case by the way a lot of people doing good work but it's not the case thank god that they 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 stopped doing that to those residents it's probably still bad but thank god they cracked that on right but we still haven't changed that uh that paradigm in, in the emergency medical service you know 90-something percent of what a firefighter does anymore is EMS, yet they're still working these 24-hour shifts. Uh, it makes no sense. We're, we're putting life-and-death decisions in the hands of people that might be on hour 23 of a 24-hour shift. So, uh, but... but why, why, by the way, really quick, why hasn't that paradigm changed? Because it's commonsensical. It makes sense. People like you have been on the front lines. They look, bad idea. How come it hasn't changed? Uh, I'll, I'll defer that question to okay. the firefighters. I'm not. Okay. I'm not qualified okay. to answer that. I think I know the answer, yep. but but okay. I'm certainly not qualified. Okay. Um, nevertheless, it uh, it is an all-consuming uh, lifestyle. Being the homicide lieutenant is an all-consuming lifestyle. You are answering the cell phone. You're answering the pager 24 seven. Uh, Did your wife resent that, that that pager or that job? I mean, at the time, I, I think you. I, I I if I remember correctly, I think you were divorced. Uh, um, but but. I was married at the time. Yeah, uh, and, and and let me candidly, that that is a strain on the marriage, I guess. Is that a yeah? There there can be no question. Right. There can be no question. Uh, 
uh, that it is difficult on marriage. You know, Did she resent life. the pager? Uh, I don't think she resented the pager and the interruptions as much as the fact that we always had to two, take two cars everywhere. Um, wherever we went, we had to take two cars because uh, I you never can, knew. You can, if, never, you can never drive with your wife because you never know if you're going to get summoned or get an emergency call or page. That's exactly right. Fascinating. That's exactly right. And it's difficult. Uh, I There was not a single family holiday that I didn't have to leave for a murder. Not every year, but uh, every Thanksgiving there was always a murder. Uh, nearly every Christmas, I'd have to leave for a murder. Um, so, birthdays, anniversaries. Uh, so but They know what they're signing up for. A woman who marries a person at LVMPD or specifically this, they kind of know what they're... Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we had talked... Anybody make it work? Do you know any homicide detectives make the marriage work? I mean, like, and they seem like they're actually in a happy marriage. Someone who not just stays married, but seems like... They actually have a really damn good marriage, and this guy's a homicide detective, or a woman is a homicide detective. I can point to many, many of them. In fact, from my personal experience, probably the majority, uh, the plurality of the people I know mm-hmm. are still married and happily married. A great example is uh, a fellow you know very well, uh, Sergeant Kevin Manning. Uh, I think they're probably going on 45 years of marriage now, uh, just as strong as they ever were. Mm-hmm. And there's a guy that worked... 10 years as a homicide sergeant. So it, it's not the job, it's it's how you handle it. Yep. You mentioned, and I have to go back to him because he's probably, I think, he's definitely one of the three best rappers of all time. He had, whether you like some of the lyrics and some of the things he represented, at the end of the day, the guy had an, Tupac Shakur had an incredible flow. I mean, the way he flowed and surfed off of words was incredible. He obviously had a great impact. He died prematurely, who knows, maybe Tupac Shakur would have become, you know, you know, there's moments of enlightenment, maybe he would be uh, who knows, an academic, whatever he could, you know, who knows what he would have evolved to be but, let me ask you this, without talking directly about the case and maybe things you can't talk about, do you think you know, you don't have to tell me, do you think you know who killed Tupac Shakur, even though it's, it's never, do you think, like you and the detectives, you think, well we know who but knowing it can be harder than actually proving and having a case. So I, I appreciate what you're saying. Yep. But that case is still such a uh, such a delicate topic. Um, it is so close and personal to so many people. Uh, respectfully, I, I'm not I'm not gonna yeah. even venture down that road, Frank, because it's so personal and and uh, you know it would be disrespectful for me. Uh, to venture any opinions okay. on that. Just making an attempt there. I appreciate, um, I appreciate it, and yeah. I mean that with all sincerity. No, 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 no. I, I, I appreciate that too. So the percent solved, though, the percent of homicides solved, right? It's hard to solve some of these cases. I've seen the figures, I don't know why I'm thinking this, but I've seen like 50-some percent, maybe even that. What, what's the amount, when, there, when a homicide is committed, the percentage of conviction that you know, maybe LVMPD, when you were there in your tenure, and what it tends to be nationally is what? What percentage of these cases About get? 62. Okay. 62% nationally has been pretty much, there, there's some anomalies recently. It's dropped, I understand, to below yep. 60. But 60 to 62 has been the traditional clearance rate. But there's some flaws in the methodology on how they uh, establish that percentage. Do you want me to get into that? Give us a quick version of that. Yeah, what, 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 so you think the percentage is higher than the actual 62%? Yes. 
Yeah. And here's why. For example, and a if, train going by. Yeah, we got a little mini toy train going by. With no kids. For example, if a murder occurs on December 31st of one year, and we make an arrest and convict the guy in January of the following year, it will forever be in the statistics as unsolved. Because they have to have a beginning date and an end date, and it goes by calendar year. And so a clearance is defined as an arrest or an indictment. So if the arrest occurred in a different calendar year than the actual crime, they don't correlate, and it goes in as unsolved. So that's one flaw in the statistics. That's arrest an insane of- flaw. That's an absurd... But, but think about it. In, in terms of statistics, you have to have a beginning right. date and end date. Right, 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 right. right. So, so, but that's a, that's yeah. a flaw in right. the calculation of, of clearance rate. The other part is that many, many times we will know who is responsible for it, and we are confident. Which is what I just asked you, by the way. <laughs> right. Right. But we lack sufficient evidence to prosecute. Now, in American jurisprudence, we only get one bite at the apple. Double jeopardy prevents us from trying in case we encounter additional evidence. So, so we prosecutors are going to make sure that they have sufficient evidence that they are confident that they're going to get a uh, conviction before they'll take it to trial. So many, many cases, we're fairly certain that we know who done it, but we just can't prove it yet. But that's why there's no statute of limitations for murder, because you can always you can always submit that case later. Are killers getting smarter? Are they, is it getting harder to catch them or easier? You have all these technological advancements, but on the other hand, it's a, it's an interesting game because on the one, someone you know, if people are killing impulsively, then maybe they're not smart about it; they're reckless. But if someone killed with premeditation and it, and they spent weeks or months or even years thinking of how to do it. There's a lot of resources for them out there too to say how to, you know, because they can understand how you guys think. So are killers getting smarter or are they just, nah, Frank, most of them are just impulsive. They leave tons of clues and so that cat and mouse game between police and bad guys. Killers are not getting smarter, but it is getting harder to catch and convict killers. But it's not because they're getting smarter. It's because of two reasons I I submit to you. The first is the CSI effect. Um, Because of the popular TV show, juries are expecting enormous amounts of physical forensic evidence uh, before they'll convict somebody, which causes prosecutors to be reluctant to take a case to trial unless there's uh, a a great amount of of physical forensic Mm -hmm. evidence that they can present to a jury. The second part is just society's attitude. I mean, it is part of everyday language now from grade one through college, snitches get stitches. So people just aren't willing to be good witnesses. People aren't willing to stand up and do the right thing for the right reasons. Uh, and, and in my view, those are two primary reasons why, uh, while killers aren't getting any better at killing, we're just going to see fewer and fewer convictions. It's interesting, Carmelo Anthony, I'm from Baltimore, and Carmelo Anthony, the NBA pro, he had a, he famously had the shirt a couple years ago It said, stop snitching, <laughs> even him. He had this, the stop snitching shirt that got a lot of attention. Um, so when it comes to convicting, getting a conviction in a homicide case, but 
By the way, thank you, my listeners. Thank you so much for listening. I know we got a lot of background. Tom and I are in a really nice area. It's called Town Square. If you ever come to Las Vegas, got Whole Foods here. You got coffee places, women with their kids and their strollers, and we got. We're right in line of McCarran Airport with the, uh, you know, so we got planes flying overhead, birds flying. Uh, thank you for staying tuned to Life Jitsu Art of Life here with Tom Monahan, who was with LBMPD forever and ever, ran the homicide division. When it comes to getting a conviction for someone charged with homicide, you mentioned the juries, and juries are now expecting, you're seeing a trend where it seems like juries are expecting even more evidence because of the CSI effect, they're watching the TV shows, so they, maybe even, in your view, maybe even the standard's unrealistic. It's like, wait, real world. Is there a leap of faith usually required in convictions? In other words, can I, if I'm a juror, even if you have bulletproof whatever, What's my probability? Is it 99%? I'm, I did not see this person with my own two eyes. Usually, that's assume there's usually not video. I did not see them. Is there a leap of faith still built in our criminal justice system, though, Tom, where it's like the best you can get is 99%? Can you get 100%? If you don't have absolute video, conclusive, authentic video, is there a leap of faith involved in our criminal justice system? It's like, hey, we're, are these probabilities to convict normally, like circumstantial evidence? Hey, we have DNA. We put them at the whatever. 99% probability or whatever, but 100% would be you'd have to sit there and watch with your own two eyes or you have a videotape of it. I just want to get, I might, might not matter to most people, but it matters to me in the sense that just people want 100% I saw it with my own two eyes, I saw it on video. And it's like, wait, you can't really get 100%, like, unless you have a video, you can't get, you can get 99% probably. We got DNA, we got this. Talk about that, I mean, what your thoughts on that. So, so what you're describing is, is reasonable doubt. Yeah. And uh, that has been litigated and debated and analyzed by academics and, and uh, lawyers for a lot of years. There's a reason that the framers of the Constitution uh, created the jury system and jury of our peers, because they want to ensure that, that common sense is applied to any legal analysis. If common sense weren't applied, then they would simply take the scales that you've seen, the scales of justice, and it would be a statistical analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is important, it was important to the framers and is just as important now that the community provide the, uh, their community values mm -hmm. and that they place the human uh, context to these very important decisions. Um, and, and as a result, uh, you know, the, uh, the decisions reached by juries, it's always, you know, you've, you've sat in the courtroom as the juries return with the verdict, and you can see the tension because you may have listened to all the testimony, you may have seen all of the evidence, but what goes on in the, in the minds of men and women is still unknown. And, uh, and so that's why it's so tense as the jurors are returning a verdict. And, and I'm a supporter of that. I don't think we should look at strictly, you know, the uh, objective, impartial. We need to, to employ a little bit of human common sense. Is it basically the case that, hey, Frank, barring absence some concrete video evidence or you saw someone do it yourself, you're looking at probabilities and you know maybe you get maybe you ascribe a 99 percentile but you never really get a hundred percent there is a little leap of faith built in then to to 
convicting someone. Is there, well, I'm, I'm asking. And it's funny you say uh, eyewitness, but eyewitness testimony is probably one of the least uh, reliable pieces of information ever. Fascinating. Yeah. Uh, you know, because memories are just fuzzy as all and, hell, and people's perception are colored. So, so eyewitness identification is one of the least reliable pieces of evidence that we have. <laughs> Descartes, you know, I, I, I think, therefore I am. But you think, you know, again, it's interesting. And ma- magicians, cat, we are, we're in the city of magic here. David Copperfield and many others, and and Chris Angel and Jen Kramer out there, up and comer, Yale educated. But but in, in the city of magic, you know, that's that's the one of of our major senses. The sight can be deceived so easily. Um, let me ask you. So this fascinating stuff. Um, polygraph tests. Polygraphs, to my knowledge, to my knowledge, not admissible in court or maybe in civil case. Are they admissible in civil cases? I believe so, yeah. They can be admissible, but in criminal cases, not admissible. That's correct. What I know of polygraph, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I, I could be wrong, but we got an expert here, Tom Monahan, is going to set me straight. If my recollection is correct, a re- if, if you have a really respected polygrapher who knows what they're doing, Polygraphs can be roughly 98% accurate, which is pretty damn high if that's true, if I'm right on that. And so, A, am I right on that? What is there a ballpark figure where a respectable person can get, hey, what's that percentage? And B, if they are pretty high with their probability when conducted by a really respected polygrapher, why aren't they admissible in court? Why aren't they used? I first off, I, I'm not at all an expert on polygraphs. Um, I stand the, corrected. The uh, the percentage uh, I wouldn't begin, but that sounds unrealistic. Ninety eight percent. I I know a lot of uh, polygraph examiners. Uh, everyone I know would tell you it's just a tool. That it is a tool to assist a, a very good interviewer uh, or interrogator. Mm-hmm. But it's a polygraph a machine in the hands of a poor interviewer is uh, the equivalent of handing a hammer to someone without an opposable thumb. Um, it's it's a tool without any value. Uh, so uh, I I personally. Uh, so from your recollection, you're not. He's not an expert now. I, I stand corrected, Tom. But from your vantage point, then what you do know of them, you feel good that they're actually not admissible. You don't feel like that should be in the criminal justice system. You don't feel like polygraphs should be a a, a, a determiner of guilt or innocence, yeah, or even I, an influencer of guilt yeah, or innocence. I, 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 they are used all the time as uh, as investigative tools. Um, even the police department. I mean, I'm absolutely. assuming for you guys we, we do them all pass, the time. Yeah. We do them all the time, but again, uh, it is used as a tool for interviews. The, the reliability of it, or the conclusion of the interviewer, shouldn't be part of uh, the criminal record, or uh, part of the, the evidentiary record. Now, guys, I know Tom is a busy person. We're coming down home stretch, but now let's get a little bit more into the again life jitsu art of life. Life through the eyes of Tom Monahan, native Bostonian, transplanted Las Vegas for how many years? Been 30? 33. 33 years. This guy has seen this city. By the way, if you're listening, if you haven't been to Las Vegas, metropolitan area of two million, two point two million, whatever it is, I think forty or so million tourists a year. This city. Tom knows that I know it. Uh, this city is really um, exploding right now. Hold on one second, Tom. Uh, 